0: Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, let's continue to worship the Lord as we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to continue from where we left off last week and have continued to leave off and kind of building a narrative. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like for the people of God to truly be indwelt and filled with the Spirit of God and to live in that empowerment and uh, one of my contentions with looking at the current uh, scope of christianity around the world is that we have forgotten what it looks like to live in the empowerment of the of the scriptures and so the conviction that comes out of that is as you look at modern day christianity and certainly american christianity and compare that to first century christianity there there is such a deep contrast and so if it's the same spirit as paul talks about then And if Jesus said that greater things than these you will do, uh, what is the missing ingredient? And since God is faithful and since He never changes uh, and He is immutable... the only thing that makes sense is that Christians are not taking full advantage of every benefit and gift that God has bestowed upon them and in them. And so it's important for us from time to time to go back to the, to the book of Acts and to see what it is that God, uh, God has for them and, and the stories and the narrative that He has given to us that might light a path for us and shine a light for us to be able to walk. And so we're going to begin in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Syrians, and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand, listen to this, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men. Remember, the, the word we used last week with the complaints of the Hellenistic Christians, uh, they, they were complaining in secret, and they were dealing with it biblically. But here we have the world instigating secretly. And so, again, there's a deep contrast between those that are empowered by the Spirit and those who are not. And they said, We have heard him, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, quickly, I want to turn over to uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now, here, the, the prophet Zechariah is talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to those first Uh, century Christians. And he uses the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He uses the term Spirit of Grace. Which is very similar to what we find in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 29, which says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace, referring to quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. So both of these verses specifically state that the Holy Spirit Himself is the Spirit of grace. In other words, the Holy Spirit may just literally be the grace of God Himself. If God's grace is God's power flowing and operating through us, then the power of God is really the power of the Holy Spirit Himself flowing through us. Then it makes perfect, logical sense that the Holy Spirit himself would then be called the Spirit of the grace of God. So the Holy Spirit is an actual grace of God. as such, all Christians actually have the grace of God already within them, residing with them, indwelling them, since we all have the Holy Spirit already living inside of us. So I want us to go back now to Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 when the Bible says that Stephen was full of grace and power. This is another way of saying that spirit that, that Stephen was living and walking within the full functioning of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is operating in that. He is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we already know that his reputation was being a man full of the Holy Spirit because that was one of the qualifications for being a deacon of which Stephen was one. In fact, the first one mentioned, you cannot have the grace of God without having the Spirit of God. So when Luke says in Acts that Stephen was full of grace and power, it's another way of saying that he is constantly living within the indwelling empowerment of the Spirit the fullness of the Spirit was producing opportunities was going before Stephen and producing opportunities and again it's easy for us to look at here you have a man of Stephen and there's great resolution and disputes being settled in the early church and here is another but from Luke As soon as they begin to gain some steam and some momentum as an early church here is another crisis but those crises gives birth to even better things now look the Holy Spirit is producing opportunities Stephen being full of the Spirit is looking for opportunities and I hope that you can see the application that there is for us there that as we are operating in the Spirit the Spirit makes opportunities we call them divine appointments but the Holy Spirit gives us divine appointments but if we're not looking for them we'll slip right past them but Stephen being full of the Spirit is engaged in his world in such a way that he is looking for opportunities to take advantage of empowerment from the Holy Spirit as we've already seen gives us power confidence giftings ability to see through the eyes of Jesus and think through the mind of Christ to be able to care to have wisdom to experience transformation and ultimately reconciliation within ourselves and with those around us. To be able to produce signs and wonders and to be able to speak with authority, to perform miracles and to have a testimony and to live life with courage in the face of diversity and division. It seems though that there is another component that comes along with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and if you if you know if you study fear much and uh, and uh, again I'm not saying that you should, but people have a fear of death, but there is a fear that people have even more so than death or dying, and that's the fear of speaking. Uh, now some may dispute that, but there is a fear that we experience when we have to stand before people and give some sort of a speech or a testimony or some kind of dialogue. We get nervous about what if we, if we're going to embarrass ourselves or if we're going to Uh, receive a negative reputation as a part of what we're about to say or if we mess up or if we say the wrong thing or how we're going to be perceived and so these fears begin to to guide uh, our lives but i want you to notice so far in the book of acts that every time there is a talk about the being filled with the holy spirit the one result that culminates is the ability to speak boldly to be able to speak and declare the truths of god's word And if if there is one thing about modern Christianity that I see is that most Christians are silent when it comes to their witness. They're silent when it comes to declaring the application of the Word of God. But when you look at the first church, every time we talk about the feeling of the Holy Spirit, they look for an opportunity to declare, an opportunity to herald the good news, an opportunity to bring people into the truths of Jesus Christ. So, signs and wonders bring about conflict, yes, but that brings about the opportunities to declare God's truth. Now, these that are deacons are serving, and they are serving well. But they're not just serving. Stephen, it'd be easy to say, "Well, Stephen's not a preacher. Stephen is a deacon. Stephen should be should be serving." Or it'd be easy for Stephen to say, "Listen, I'm, I, my gift is not speaking. My gift is waiting on tables and serving uh, the, the the widows." But. We need to understand that when we live in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is every one of our jobs to do the, to do the work of an evangelist. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily pastoring a church. It doesn't even necessarily mean heralding the good news to a congregation. But the, the truths of God must always be on our lips. That's why Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And so it's important for us to see that. So here we have Deacon Stephen preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They're not just deacons, they're evangelists, and even more so, disciple-makers. So, And by the way, let me say this, we can't be one without the other. You can't just serve without making some declaration as to why, or we've become humanitarians. On the other side, you can't just preach without having an opportunity to serve people as a means to prove the motivation by which you care but look at verse 10 but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking now just a couple of quick things strike out at me and I want to share them with you this wasn't about truth this wasn't necessarily about what Stephen was saying there were many people that were saying this so why all of a sudden is he a target Well, remember who Stephen is. Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. We learned that last week. He had converted to Christ. But look who's after him. And if you look closely at the synagogue of the freedmen... now this is not the temple. Uh, History tells us that there were probably hundreds of synagogues all around Jerusalem. This one, the name of it is the synagogue of the freedmen. But look at the, the places where these people are from or of. And so we know that they live in Jerusalem, but their background is from far uh, uh, far away. For instance, uh, Cyrene or Alexandria or Cilicia or Asia. This synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, is made up of Hellenistic Jews. These are people that were in the same place uh, category as Stephen was just prior to his conversion to Christ. Perhaps it's it's even that this is the church or the synagogue that Stephen used to attend. Maybe this is why it made him such a target. He used to be a Hellenistic Jew. Now he's a Christian. And his former friends are looking at him and uh, seeing something in him that they do not like. Perhaps it's a little bit of notoriety that Stephen is achieving. Maybe it's some leadership abilities that he is achieving, and they're jealous well, we talked about that with the religious leaders from a few weeks ago and how their jealousy drove their actions and their thinking. And their, their fallen nature drove their decision-making. And listen, we have to be very, very careful that that's not true of us, that we take our fallen nature and we allow the Empowerment Holy Spirit to reconcile us to our spiritual nature, and we take those thoughts and feelings captive to Christ. That's what Stephen is doing, and these men are intimidated by Stephen now, now, in 1914 and, uh, and 15, there was a uh, archaeological discovery found in Jerusalem, and they found an actual Greek-speaking synagogue. Perhaps this is the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, we know from history that during the diaspora when the Jews were kind of expelled from Jerusalem and they traveled the world that many of them were taken into slavery by Rome and when they were released from slavery they gravitated back to Jerusalem and because of their background and because of their history and because of their wounds they gravitated toward each other and they established their own Greek speaking synagogue right in Jerusalem and they called this synagogue the synagogue of the freed men. Now this was a few generations ago but from generations Generation to generation. they kept the traditions, they kept the name, they kept their identity in their slavery rather than in their uh, in their faith. Anyway, I only say all of those things just to verify that what Luke is writing at Acts and the issue between Stephen and his former friends is a really real issue. Sometimes, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to our faith but sometimes it's important for us just to kind of look and uh, when we see the the history backing up what scripture says it's a whole lot easier for us to see ourselves in the story and to be able to make proper uh, application if we properly connect the dots so we've been looking at what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and following the command to be filled. So I want to break that down for a moment. Every time that Luke has talked about being filled, or even when Jesus talked about the filling of of the Spirit, this phrase actually means to be furnished. right? So I want you to think of an apartment that you're going to let or you're going to rent, and it has everything that you need when you move in. That is what the word means it means that you are the dwelling place and the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes in he finally furnishes you you were empty you had cobwebs in every corner but when the Holy Spirit comes in he furnishes your apartment right he he, he brings in everything that you need in order to accomplish what God's will is for your life so we can get rid of our stuff and we allow the Holy Spirit to furnish. To furnish uh, us. So with that furnishing. A part of what the Holy Spirit brings in to furnish us is it opens up our ability to understand the Scriptures, the Word of God spiritually. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. For he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually He's noticed that. The words of God, the truths of God, are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of, of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the Holy Spirit moves into us and moves us from foolish to focused. From information where we read the Scripture... For information to education, from education to application, and then from application to transformation, and without the Holy Spirit furnishing us and giving us the ability to perceive spiritual things it 's just words on a page that we can learn, but they have no power in our life that only comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, look at Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen, where it says, "All scripture <clears throat> is breathed out." excuse me, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if you're reading from the King James, the King James translators felt like there was a different word that was a better translation. And that was to be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Thoroughly furnished. And that's what the word actually means, is to mean completely furnished, furnished with the best. So I want you to notice how this works. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit furnishes us. He brings everything in that we need to accomplish the will of God. But when we take what the Holy Spirit brings, our ability to understand God's truth, it is the understanding of God's truth that thoroughly equips us, completely finishes us off. And, uh, and so the Holy Spirit with the Word of God makes us complete. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit, we would be tempted, and there's many of us, including myself, you know, from time to time, is I don't know if the Holy Spirit wants me to this or if the Holy Spirit wants me to this. Am I supposed to think this? Am I supposed to do this? And it's the Word of God that illuminates what the Holy Spirit has furnished in me. And I love how these things go together also love that when we find in the the first six chapters of the book of Acts, when when we talk about the indwelling or the feeling of the the first Christians, the first thing that happens is an understanding of God's Word. When Peter was first uh, given the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He went to the Old Testament, began to break down the prophecies. We see this time and time again. We begin to see this, how the Word of God gives counsel. It gives processing. Otherwise, we're just left to our feelings. When Peter is in the upper room, when Peter is talking to Israel, and he begins to break down all of the Old Testament prophecies and the law and point to Jesus, when when Peter is having to give a... some sort of a testimony to the religious leaders, he's able to understand scriptures like he'd never understood them before. When Stephen now is about to talk to the religious leaders, he begins to break down the scriptures in ways that he had never seen them before. And later, we're going to see how Paul, when Paul was indwelt with the Holy Spirit, how he was for immediately able to understand the scriptures in ways he had never understood them before. Now back to Acts chapter 6. These men knew that Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, and now he is a Christian. And they hate him as a Christian. He is now a threat, not because of what he is saying, but because the name by which he says it. That's the empowerment. And when they show their faces to Stephen, they are accusatory. They are filled with animosity. But when they look at Stephen's face, I want you to see this. Stephen is sitting in the defense chair... And they are the ones who are offended. But they're the ones that are angry. But when they look at the one that's on defense, they see his face as the face of an angel. What does that even mean, the face of an angel? Well, since we don't know what an angel looks like, and by the way, Luke did. He had seen them. Uh, Peter did. They had seen them. Uh, Many of these early disciples had... Uh, encounters with the angelic. And so for Luke to say that he had the face of an angel, what does that even mean? It means that he looked like heaven. He looked like he belonged to another kingdom. He was reflecting what he was already looking at. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 16, Peter says, "...having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." That is exactly what is happening right here with Stephen. Another great translation of that says, "When people throw mud at you, make sure nothing sticks." And that's what's happening. Then in Acts chapter seven, they see Peter, or they see Stephen's face as a face of an angel. But in, in Acts chapter seven, the uh, the high priest says, "Well, let's hear your side of the story." Is is what they uh, are? What they're saying is that true? Stephen and Stephen immediately rather than saying yes it's true or no it's not true he does not defend himself at all and we we begin to see this as a trend where the early Christians don't defend themselves they just launch into ministry Stephen immediately begins preaching a sermon and he starts where they would have started with father Abraham Now that's something that everyone can agree on. He is finding common ground with them. And by the way, that's a really good process as evangelists, as as those who are responsible to make disciples, is in our conversations with people to find common ground and to begin to reveal Christ out of that. And that's exactly what Stephen does. I'll just give you a real quick tip that I have found very helpful. There's one thing that everyone loves to talk about, and that's themselves. So when you engage people, instead of starting with Christ, start with the person. As they begin to talk about themselves, you can start hearing their hearts and their burden. And because we have already been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can show where the Holy Spirit would furnish their lives as well and begin to point that out to them, help them understand uh, the Scriptures. So, that's what Stephen does. He, he finds common ground, he builds a case, and then he proves Jesus. He goes on to Moses and begins to break down the law. And then he shows how Jesus is the Messiah, forecasted by the law. And then he mentioned the coming one. And he shows how Jesus was uh, everything that the Scriptures had declared. And then Stephen shows the part that they played in prophecy by killing Jesus. Now, I want to skip all the way down to verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, when they heard Father Abraham, Moses, the law, the Messiah, murder, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. Do you know what kind of anger that is? I've been angry in my life. I've had to repent of anger in my life. But I can tell you, I have never been grind my teeth angry. That is a whole nother level of just rage. (laughs) He was the one that was accused, and yet they were the ones that were irate. Notice how the Spirit empowers a person to live and to not fear death. Stephen's life is on the line, and he does not count his life. He counts helping people find and follow Jesus. He counts the message as more valuable than his own life. There is grace for that. Folks, I'm telling you, Stephen looked right into the eyes of death and then he looked right on beyond it and he did not bat an eye. He looked like an angel because he was reflecting the heavens already. But he, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And here's Luke's butt we talked about last week. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears. That actually means to push. That word that's here, stopped, means to push together. They didn't just stop listening. They put their hands on their head so that they couldn't hear the name of Jesus. And then they rushed, him, uh, rushed together at him. When they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments, notice this, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he kneeled out with a loud, uh, uh, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And doesn't that sound so much like Jesus? Receive my spirit. Do not count this against them. Forgive them. They know not what they do. It should sound familiar because Jesus and Stephen was operating in the same spirit, the same spirit that is in us. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You've heard people looking at the face of death. Stephen looked right past death. And that's what the empowerment of the Holy Spirit can do in us. Most people fear dying. They fear rejection. They fear accusation. They fear retribution. They fear whatever it may be. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you fear, they just fear. We just fear. But the empowerment of the Holy Spirit allows us to look right past fear and to be able to see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father the sovereign, unchanging God of history and of the future. And if we live in His kingdom, we do not have to fear this kingdom. And the empowerment of God, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to see Jesus in every circumstance of life. There is no excuse to fear. When you're already living in His kingdom, the end of your world isn't but a bump in the road. We just move from one reality directly into another reality. And that's, that's the true reality anyway, isn't it? His kingdom is seamless. You see, we are already living in His kingdom. We don't come to Christ just so we can become saved and go to heaven when we die. We come to Christ so that we can learn how to live His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our responsibility as Christians is to live out the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to to follow the model of Jesus Christ and His mission in everyday life. So if that's true, I am already dead. I have already died and Christ lives in me. And so when I die, my physical body dies, that's a seamless transition from this reality to another reality. But I'm still living in the exact same kingdom because we're already kingdom citizens of, of God's kingdom. So, if you live for this one, you're going to fear. If you care uh, uh, what this kingdom can do for you, you're going to navigate it very carefully, and you're going to live worried, and you're going to live anxious, and you're going to get, live in fear. But if you're living for His kingdom, and for His glory, and for His applause, you can live free. If you live for this kingdom, when others stands against you or your agenda, you're going to grind your teeth at them. But when you live for His kingdom, you can live at peace even with adversity. Peace, freedom, joy. Sound good? It's only possible through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We're almost finished but I want to shift all the way over into Acts chapter 9 and we're going to close this out. In Acts chapter 9 we find that Saul was the leader Uh, uh, that the religious leaders depended upon to destroy the Christians. And we know now that they were called the followers of the way because Christianity isn't only theological, it is behavioral too. They were the followers of the way. uh, Paul, Saul, worked directly for Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. And it was Saul that these religious leaders placed their coats in front of because he was the leader of all of these executions, including Stephen's. In Acts chapter 9, Saul finds out that there are a lot of Christians living 120 miles away in Damascus, and there was a group of them beginning to multiply. And so he goes to the high priest, and he seeks approval to be able to travel up to Damascus to kill all of these people. The last time we saw uh, Saul was in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, where it says that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That's the kind of man that Saul was, but I want you to notice the difference. On his way to destroy the church, he is intercepted by Jesus himself. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. This is two times. And when when God says our name two times, it's... uh, It's not because he's angry, it's to show deep emotion. This is something that is very important to to our Father. If you remember, uh, God's not angry when he says his name twice. Remember, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And when Jesus is looking with compassion over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so God is not angry with Saul here. He is feeling emotionally deep. And there's something here that's been tucked away all of my life that I've never seen before, but I want you to see this. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's not the church. It's Jesus himself. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you go back to the original in Acts chapter 9 kicking against the goads isn't found in the original but if you go over to Acts chapter 26 you will see as Paul is giving his testimony he includes that in his own narrative so at some point along the way when the scribes were uh, transcribing the scriptures they thought they were doing God a favor by inserting it here Uh, it doesn't make it untrue it just it wasn't there but we do know that it happened that that Jesus did say that and the reason that I say that that because it's so important This goad was a really long stick with a sharp point at the end. And farmers would use this with their oxen that wouldn't cooperate. And so if you have a stubborn ox and you're trying to direct it in a certain direction, you take this big sharp spear and you begin to gouge the hind legs of this ox so that the ox will do what you want it to do. Now, occasionally, the ox would be so stubborn it wouldn't listen and you'd have to just gouge a little bit harder. Now, understand this. This is what Jesus is saying to Paul. Paul, you are an ox, and I am the farmer, and I'm working to get you to go into the direction that I want you to go, and you refuse to go in that direction. So don't be surprised when you start feeling these sharp spears hitting you at the back of the leg. And so why do you keep not just refusing to follow, you're actually resisting and pushing against you're actually pushing against these sharp objects but they are going to continue until you are obedient you see this but i want you to notice that even though god loves paul saul so much that he is going to be so active in his life to motivate him to holiness because he's going to use him to reach the nations and kings but he starts out by saying it's hard for you you know this it's painful for me to watch. I mean, it's he's deeply emotional about it, but he's not emotional because Saul is disobedient. He's emotional because of the pain, the unnecessary pain that is a part of Paul's life because he's not cooperating with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so, when Saul says, "What do you?" Then Saul says, "What, what do you want me to do?" There is so much pain in this man's life. God had been working and working and working. Perhaps Saul was a part of the Sanhedrin. Many people believe that he was a part of the Sanhedrin who maybe even sat on the council when Jesus was being uh, abused and, and watched him crucified. And he kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. And now he's traveling the world destroying the name of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus is walking along with him every step of the way, watching all of these heartaches and these pains and directing him toward himself because he loves him. And he looks at him and he says, why are you going through these pains unnecessarily? Surrender to me. And here's what Saul says. What do you want me to do? Well, I want you to go to Damascus, street called Straight. And uh, I want you to wait there and I'll give you further direction. Well, we know that Saul was blinded from that interaction with Jesus. He gets up and he goes and uh, he goes into this uh, man, uh, Judas's house, and, and while he is there, uh, the Lord comes to Ananias. And I love when he says Ananias because when you get all the way down there to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Ananias part of chapter 9, it says there was a certain disciple. Now, I want you to understand how important this is. We know who Paul is going to become. He's a powerhouse missionary. But who was the launching point? Just a certain disciple, just a man. He's not a preacher. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. He's not a prophet. He's not an apostle. He's just a certain disciple that lives, and God wants to use him. Now, if this had been the apostle Peter, it had been easy to say, Yeah, everything that Paul says, he just heard from Peter. No, no, no. So God eliminates that and just uses an everyday Christian who is learning to walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to see transformation come into the life of uh, of Saul. (laughs) Now, Jesus comes to him in a vision and calls his name just one time, Ananias. What does Ananias say? Not the same thing as Paul. Ananias says, here I am, Lord. (laughs) I mean, can you love... I love this. Ananias is waiting in anticipation of what does God want me to do today. At any given moment when God calls his name, what does Ananias respond with? Here I am. I mean, think about this. What would it look like if we woke up with the anticipation that God was going to use us through His empowerment today? Would He tap us on the shoulder? Would He call us by name? Would He give us eyes to see what He would do in any given moment? If we're focused on this world, we're going to miss it. We're going to overlook it. We're going to look right through it. What if we lived with that anticipation? All right, almost finished. And Ananias went his way. This is verse 17, by the way. Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and what? be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive your sight, that is a physical healing. That's important. That's going to be a testimony that this man truly is of God. But I want you to see something even deeper. Paul does, or Ananias doesn't say that you may be saved. He equates salvation with the exact same thing as being filled with the Spirit of God. So, as we close, let me point out that it was the feeling of the Holy Spirit, the feeling of the Holy Spirit that brought Stephen peace in the face of death. It's also the feeling of the Holy Spirit that brought peace to Saul in the face of life. It changed him completely. It thoroughly furnished him. It changed his perspective. It changed his loves. It changed his desires. It changed his authorities. It changed his message. The Scripture says that once he received the Holy Spirit, his life was changed. He immediately went baptized and began to attend and teach in the synagogues in Damascus. Spent time fellowshipping with the disciples that were already in Damascus. And by the way, for most of my life I read that spent time with the disciples, meaning the twelve. But these were just another church launch up in Damascus where Saul got his start. He went to kill them and now he's enjoying them. But that's what the Holy Spirit can do in our life. Bring peace into our life and give us purpose well beyond this kingdom. Well, I just wonder if you need peace today. If you're not a Christian, this this life is filled with anxieties and fear and worry and doubt, frustrations, constant crisis, meaningless crisis. The only way to find peace, joy, and freedom is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that is to give our life directly to Jesus Christ and to live in anticipation of Him using us as a certain disciple. But if you are a Christian, and perhaps you are not living in the freedom and the, and the peace and the joy that comes from a relationship with Jesus, I beg you today is the day to say, I'm going to begin to live in anticipation. I'm going to spend time in the Word of God asking the Spirit to illuminate me so that I can be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I refuse to live in this world's kingdom any longer. I'm going to be translated into the kingdom of light, and I'm going to begin to walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word, the power that we have within us. I just pray that we would learn what it looks like to live in that empowerment, to live as spiritual men instead of foolish physical men. Help us not to live as mere men any longer, but to walk in the fullness, the furnished equipment, the uh, equipping, the, uh, the the complete package of all the gifts that You have given us through the ministry of Your Spirit. Lord, we actually need to fall on our face and repent before You for taking such a gift so haphazard. And so, Lord, I pray that You would show us, light our path, help us to see, convict our hearts, convict our nature, and let us bring our life into Yours, bring Your life into ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.